You're listening to The Fabric Podcast as we interview John Mark Comer, Pastor of Teaching and Vision at Bridgetown Church, Portland, at Session 1 of Fabric City Conference 2018. Hey, man. thanks for that warm welcome right there. Yeah. That was great. Where do you want me? Right here? You just go right there. All Everyone, right. this is John Mark. Hi, everybody. And, uh, I evening. had the privilege of... Meeting you last year, beginning of last year, I was in Portland, mm-hmm. hanging out with some friends of yours and your dad, yeah. and, uh, and then we went, and ha- well, we went to a coffee shop, and I drank a sparkling water, and you <laughs> had a coffee. Anyone who ever wants to take me to a coffee shop will know that I don't do coffee, which is, some people say to me, how do you do life as a pastor without coffee? Uh, it's, it's easy. H2O yeah. all the we're, way. We're all in process. <laughs> We just have faith for your future still. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm just a cheap date. Yeah. <laughs> um, so good to have you with us. Yeah. I'm really excited for this weekend. John Mark is, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say your excuses on your behalf. Uh, John Mark flew in, literally landed at 2.30 this afternoon after traveling for the best part of a day and a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's already done a session this afternoon with church leaders. And, uh, and so we're working you hard and you'll sleep hard tonight. I'm sure. I hope. <laughs> so good to have you with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. This is my first time in Ireland, never been before. And I just, I've been looking forward to this for months now. It's really, other than, I don't sleep at all on a plane. So I left yesterday morning and hi is all I have, <laughs> have to say. And that's all you've got to say tonight. <laughs> that's all I have to say, yeah. One of the themes at the end of Sayer's interview there, he, I mean, he, put a big claim in right at the end there, which I don't know if you picked up on, but like, we're at the start of renewal. Yeah. I mean, yes and amen to that, right? Like, we yeah. long to see that across yeah. these lands. We long to see that across the UK. We long to see that across the world. We long to see renewal. One of the pieces he said there was living out this renewal begins with personal renewal. Yeah. So what we're going to be looking at a little bit tonight, kind of setting some groundwork ready for tomorrow, mm-hmm. is what does this personal renewal piece look like? If, we're, if yeah. we're longing to see renewal across these lands, it starts with me. Yeah. It starts with you. And so what does that begin to look like? But before we get there, tell us about yourself. Um, I'm from Portland, Oregon, which nobody knows where that is, which is great. So go to the west coast of America and just follow uh, the coastline north until the really bad weather and the really good coffee, and that's where I live. And um, the Pacific Northwest, uh, very similar climate to here, and uh, it's really kind of this axis point of post-Christian culture in America. It's a fascinating place to call home because we are, I don't know, 20 or so years ahead on the secularization curve to most of America, but still 20 um, or so years behind most of Europe and even, I would say, England. And so it's a key moment, I think, in the story of our nation. And uh, we were recently called by one magazine, The Post-Christian Frontier, which I don't know if that sounds a bit ominous, (laughs) but it feels like a really good place to work out the future of the church, not the present. I think it's really easy to just coast on inertia from the past and not realize just how acute the need is for renewal or revival or whatever you want to call that. And when you're in a city like a Portland, and I think this is becoming more and more true of the West as a whole, um, you don't coast anymore, and you're more and more aware of your need for a move of the Holy Spirit. So I love it there. We live right in the city, and we planted a church a number of years ago, and uh, we're right in a really hard place to do church, but yet we just feel like the Spirit of God is alive and at work, and not only in our church, but across our city. One of the 
markers of the church in Portland is a hunger and a thirst for unity. And so I love, I just want to say yes and affirm the fact that you're all in this room together. I feel bad for the vineyard people, but other than that, um, I like vineyard people personally, but we're just all so in do, process. So do I. You don't I mean, like coffee, <laughs> you don't like vineyard people. We're all in process, right? But um, man, this... This is a marker of what I see all across. Like, the more I travel, the more... It's a marker of the millennial generation of church planners and leaders that is sadly very different from my dad's generation and the generation before him, where there was more of a tribalism in the church, or denominationalism is what we call it, but it's tribalism. And um, so I just affirm and say yes to what you guys are doing. So very similar heart in my city. And uh, I have a lovely wife who's not here with me. I have three children, and my oldest is in the back sleeping uh, <laughs> after jet lag. Jet lag of 12. Is, jet lag and lots of pizza. Is a bit jet lag and lots of pizza and sugar. Is just, he's on the couch. He's out. <laughs> He'll be around tomorrow. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about the context of kind of what this, give us a pic, paint a little brief picture um, of what your church looks like. Um, it's mainly made up of millennials. Yeah, it looks like this. We meet literally in an old, beautiful church building uh, right in the heart of the city. They have, you know, 70% of the church is single. Most of the church is all in the millennial generation, partially just because the demographic of the city is um, basically young professionals, some young married couples, college students, and then um, older, really wealthy, really progressive people who want nothing to do with Jesus. And so um, the middle class kind of family, the city is inhospitable just at an economic level to middle class families, which are usually kind of the bread and butter of a church. And so it's not where we call home. And so the church is disproportionately young. So I, most pastors I know are praying for more young people. We're praying for like anybody over 40. Please, Jesus, please. When you're 37 and you're the elder at the church, you're like, you know you're in trouble right there. Um, but it's just, we love it. There's so much life and it's thriving. And it, I'm just, it's a very hard uh, cultural moment right now to follow Jesus in, much less lead a church in. But we love it. And really our heart um, at the church is all around this idea of apprenticeship to Jesus and following Jesus and this idea of deep change from the inside out, which is what I kind of want to talk about all day long tomorrow in depth. And you will. Let, let's, just, let's just set the framework f- yeah. for that now. Isn't Great. The whole language around apprenticeship to Jesus, I mean, Dallas Woodard uses it at length. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit, set, set the groundwork for yeah. what it means to apprentice ourselves to Jesus. Yeah, well, I mean, apprentice, I intentionally use the word apprentice most of the time instead of the word disciple. And the word in the New Testament is this Greek word methetes, and it can be translated disciple. The problem is that's not really a word that is used outside of the church. And so it's really easy to import your meaning into it. For example, most people, and again, I can't speak to Northern Ireland, but most people in America take this idea of disciple or discipleship and tear it out of its first century context, don't realize that Jesus did not make up disciples um, or discipleship. John the Baptist, you notice, had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. In fact, it didn't even start in Israel. It started with Plato and Socrates. It started with the Greek philosophers. So this was actually part and parcel of the first century education system. It was the pinnacle of it for the best of the best of the best. So Jesus is working inside an existing structure. It would almost be like Jesus is running a PhD program, but he has all the wrong candidates in it. Does that make sense? And um, seriously, I mean, it was for the best of 
of the best of the best. And then Jesus calls all the people that aren't the best of the best of the best. So we read lines like, whoever, if anybody would be my disciple, and we think, yeah, of course. You don't realize that that would be like, you know, somebody saying, if anybody would like a free ride scholarship to Yale or Harvard or whatever the best school in Ireland is, forgive my ignorance. Um, doesn't matter if you don't even have a high school diploma and you flunked your way through middle school, like, come one, come all, just, you know, DM me on Twitter and I'll get you in kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it was that revolutionary. And, um, and so it's really easy just to import our meanings into it. Like, you notice, um, and again, I don't know if this is true here, I'm guessing it is, that most people use disciple as a verb, and the New Testament's never used one time as a verb, it's a noun. So we hear, um, like, regularly people ask me, who are you discipling? That's just a really odd question. Like, take a synonym of that. Like, nobody ever says, who are you Christianing? You know what I mean? Well, maybe Anglicans say that, but um, uh, who are you Christian? Any other denominations we can bash tonight? You would say, you would say, uh, you, you would say wait a minute, a Christian, that's a noun, not a verb. You either are or you are not a Christian. Nobody says, who are you followering? They say you either are or you are not a follower of Jesus. So um, a disciple is a fine way to translate that Greek word mathetes and even the idea as is follower or student or learner. But really, I think the best word that we have in the English language that captures the idea behind this, this is not my thing, this is a, a number of Greek scholars argue this, is this word apprentice. Because it's not just a student in the sense of a university student. You go to class three days a week and you take notes and there's a test at the end and if you do well, you don't die or something. Um, and it's not just a disciple in the sense of, you know, when disciple is used as a verb, often what people mean by discipleship is either leadership development. People confuse the 12 with the fact that Jesus had hundreds of of disciples. The 12 were the apostles. He had far more disciples. He had female disciples. He had at least 120 at his resurrection. So people get confused with what Jesus was doing with the 12, with what Jesus was doing with all of his disciples. Um, so leadership development, other people mean like one-on-one -on -one mentorship. This comes out of a, a ministry that started in the U.S. a number of decades ago called The Navigators. Beautiful work. And so in that language, to disciple means like a 20-something gets with a 40-something once a week and they study the Bible or they go through a book. For other people, discipleship means like in-depth Bible study. It's all great stuff, but we don't call any of that discipleship. We call that leadership development, mentorship, and Bible study, all of which we are for. Um, apprenticeship, the way that we frame it, we would argue that a, apprenticeship to Jesus or discipleship to Jesus, or if you prefer, just following Jesus, is a life that's organized and ordered around three very simple goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. So be with Jesus. That was the first thing Jesus said. Hey, come and follow me, which wasn't a metaphor. It was literal at the time. Come and be with me. Now, of course, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now, not in this lovely building. And so the way that Jesus is with us now, he's crystal clear on this, all through the gospel of John in particular, is by the Holy Spirit. And so the metaphor that Jesus used for how we follow him now or how we are with him in the Spirit is that of abiding, this beautiful um, imagery of a vineyard and how you cultivate a vineyard and you work the soil and you prune and you create space for God to grow this life of abiding, of what um, Brother Lawrence called the practice of the presence of God. Some our Catholic brothers and sisters call it communion or contemplation. Whatever language you want to put around this idea of abiding or intimacy with God or prayer or contemplation or the practice of the presence of God, I think that's my favorite. Whatever language you like, that's like the first goal of discipleship is just to live every single waking moment in the conscious awareness of and connection to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if you are anything like me and you live in a city and you have a phone, which is almost all of you, that does not come naturally. Um, I don't just wake up and then just live in this place of like, God is with me 
all day long. I tend to like maybe start there if I'm, uh, it's a good day, you know, and I don't oversleep and then ebb in and out of that in a place of anxiety or anger or oblivion or doubt or lust or whatever it is, hurry or like, and so learning, I think the first task of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to just to practice. It's a practice. Learning to, to retune your mind and even your body like a, Dallas Willard would say, like a compass, like the arm of a compass constantly returns to the north. Just every moment you have a, a mental break, you just, your mind starts to naturally go back to God. Even your body starts to just naturally go back to God. So I think that's the first goal is to be with Jesus. The second is to become like him. It's an idea that in the Western church, I think we lost since the Protestant Reformation. Up until then, most Christians would say the central goal of following Jesus was what they called the imitation of Christ, is what Thomas Akempis called it. It was to imitate Christ, to be like him, not just in your behavior, but from your interior out, like like. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, those aren't behaviors. Um, You can't command love or joy and peace and patience in that sense. That's the internal markers of the inner, there it is, the clock to ignore, thank you. They've given us two clocks. There's another one It's not counting. It's just, I don't even know what that means because we have different time where I live. (laughs) Um, You know, what can I say? Um, all that to say, just this goal to become like Jesus, to just be radically reformed. And then the final goal is just to, to do what he did. And I, I think, um, you know, to, to, if you're an apprentice to anything, to a plumber, to an electrician, to a painter, your goal is eventually not just to know all about plumbing or electricity or painting and, like, write a book about it. Your goal is to be able to go, like, plumb or wire a house or go paint right? Like that's your whole goal is not from day one, but eventually to go do what your master does. So if you're an apprentice of Jesus, every single thing pretty much that you read about Jesus doing in the four gospels, your end goal, um, not day one, but is eventually to have Jesus say, all right, now I think you're ready. Go, you make some apprentices of me. Like you go do the stuff as Don Wimber used to say. And, And maybe a better way to phrase that is do what Jesus would do if he were you. Um, because obviously Jesus wasn't an 18-year-old single female university student or um, a 39-year-old you know, full-time parent or a pastor of a church in Belfast. So really the question to get us thinking, because all together we are the body, I'm just one piece of it and just so are you, is what would Jesus do if you were me? So all that to say, that's what I mean by apprenticeship to Jesus, is a life kind of built around these three goals. So, I mean, apprenticeship is a really, it's a physical, tangible thing in a way. Yeah. It's not just a collection of no, ideas. it's something or, you do. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a thing, and, and very often we use the language of, you know, uh, being in the way of Jesus. So, what, yes. I mean, what does that look like for you, for the people that you lead? What would you say the life of, of an apprentice or, or somebody in the way of Jesus looks yeah. like? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I love that you say that, and this language of the way. In fact, before the church was ever called the church, if you've read the Bible, if you've read the book, of Acts, it was called the way, or just followers of the way. I mean, Jesus himself was the way, and that was a little bit of a double entendre. Um, It's easy to read. I grew up in a church tradition where you read that in like a salvation sense, like he was the way to heaven. And, And that might be what John's getting at, but it's far more likely that what he's getting at is Jesus is the way to be human. He's not only divinity, but he's humanity in one place. And in Jesus' pattern of life, we see the pattern of humanity. We see like him living in the way that the universe actually works. And so what we're just trying to recapture back home is a very simple idea that is pathetic that we have to recapture this, but that the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way of life. It's, and what I mean by that is it's not just a set of ideas that you believe in your head or what we would call Bible and theology. It is that. 
It's not less than that. It's more than that. And it's not just um, a list of do's and don'ts or behaviors or what we call ethics. Again, it's, it is that. It's not less than that. It's just more than that. It's also, it's a lifestyle. And I, um, again, I don't know your country well yet. I hope to remedy that by the end of the week. Um, but in my church tradition, and I would argue in my country, a lot is said about kind of Bible theology and ethics, and very little is said about lifestyle. And um, I think lifestyle is where the money at, is money is at. And Jesus would say, believe in me, but more frequently he would say, come and follow me. And that meant more than just believe what I believe and don't have sex with this person and don't have too much money here and whatever. It it was come and pattern your life after mine. And um, this is what in the church tradition has been called the spiritual disciplines, which are simply practices, habits, rhythms, of life that are based on the pattern that was set down by Jesus that make for what he called life to the full. So we're just trying to recapture that. And frankly, I feel like now is our moment because the world is spinning out of control. You know, Mark said something really telling. And again, I don't know if that rings true here. It definitely rings true where I'm at, where secularism is no longer as alluring as it was 10 years ago. Um, you know, Mark will often talk about like Paris Hilton as the like the epoch of that era of like what you know sociologists called raunch culture, and there's this idea of like we know that's really immoral, but man, she just looks like she's having fun. You know what I mean? And there was that sense of oh, I mean, even like you see it in film, there was so, like hypersexuality. It was before the Me Too movement, before kind of the LGBTQ thing was where it's at now. And so the late '90s, early 2000s, like any any film pretty much of any was just raunchy right? So much sexuality, so much materialism, so much individualism, and it was a bit more alluring, but it's a lie. It's not, it's not actually the life that is truly life. And so at, eventually lies expose themselves as exactly that. They can only masquerade as truth as so long. So I think we're at the spot where the lie is being exposed as a lie. Our society is fragmenting and fracturing and spinning out of control. And people have lost mental health. I mean, mental illness right now is through the roof. So we have more money, more health, more, we're living longer than ever. The mortality rate is way down. Poverty, we've cut global poverty in half in the last two decades. Like, just think about that for a moment. In half, in 20 years, since, like, I was in middle school or whatever. But yet, mental illness is worse than it's ever been since we've been recording. It's through the roof. And so that just shows us that there's more to life than, like, having a really nice pair of raw denim. And you know what I mean? I mean, congrats on the raw denim. It's great. But um, there's just, there's more to life than that. And so I think this is our moment when the world is spitting out of control to just put on display a way of life that makes for what Paul's definition of the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy. When I'm tired, I talk too much. I apologize. John just really, really wants somebody to comment on his lovely jean jacket. That's really what's going on <laughs> I here. Love the, I, I love this so much. Yeah. <laughs> You don't, you don't know how to follow That's that. the end of the night. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks. If you want more fashion tips from John, we just, just come. We just want to do ministry time. All of you that don't have a jean jacket that's also comfortable, we just want to pray for you tonight. There's a lot of jean jackets out there. Most of them are just stiff and itchy and no good. We'll get you to your bed soon, mate. Thank you. <laughs> Josh is just thinking, get this man off the stage. Yeah. Spiritual renewal. Yeah. Starts... <laughs> Love that, love that yeah, pivot. Just, yeah, that's yeah. great. 
starts with starts with us. Yeah. In our in our own personal being, before the Father, wrestling with that mess and noise of the world. In the leaders gathering earlier, we were talking around um, Sabbath rest and yeah. getting away from the noise and and finding place of solitude and living a life of simplicity. We won't go into all the disciplines now, yeah. but I mean. For, for those of us here who maybe the, the language of the spiritual disciplines seems like this crazy, like maybe hyper-religious thing that's like, oh, I, can I not just like read my Bible and pray? Is that not mm-hmm. enough? You're yeah. adding a whole nother I'm already list of tired things. from doing that. Now yeah. you want me to whatever. You want me to like take a week away and be silent? And stuff. Yeah. Like that just seems crazy. I mean, wh- what would you say into that and people's kind of, I guess, fear around, fear around the disciplines? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, again, apprenticeship to Jesus does not work as an add-on to an already over-busy life. Tweet it, that. It just does not, it just does not work. Yeah. It was not created to work that way. Um, it intentionally doesn't work. It intentionally will lead you to frustration. If you just want to kind of live how Belfast lives, go about your life, follow your career, do the kind of st- whatever the stereotypical thing is here, and then just come to church every other Sunday and, you know, and be here and read your Bible once in a while and kind of have your Jesus thing on the side. It will intentionally not work to where you will grow more and more um, disenfranchised and disillusioned with the whole thing. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's God's um, anger. I think that's God's mercy because I think he loves us too much to allow us to live out of rhythm with his way of life. And so, again, without getting too theological, in Genesis chapter 1, in the origin story of the human race, the temptation from personified there as the serpent to Adam and Eve is essentially to redefine good and evil on their own terms rather than to trust God's vision of good and evil. And that, I would argue, is the root problem in all of the human condition. It's that we think we know better than God what makes for life. And really what we think makes for life most of the time makes for death. And so Jesus' way of life if you view this as, you know, some kind of I'm earning merit with God or whatever, oh my gosh, that's, that's a gross misreading of what the disciplines are. I don't even call them spiritual disciplines for all sorts of reasons. One, spiritual, most people think that means immaterial. Most of them are all things you do with your body or at least with your mind. And disciplines like went out in about 1962. And so we don't use that language, right? That is the, that is the language of the historic church. We just call them practices. But if you want to call them habits or rhythms or whatever is least offensive to you. Don't let the language throw you off. All they are is an attempt to live the way that Jesus lived, believing that Jesus was a teacher. And that we, this is, again, back to apprenticeship. We have to recapture Jesus the rabbi. In, in the Western church, there's been so much emphasis on Jesus the Savior, which is good and beautiful and true, and I'm 100% there. But you, you notice, and this is a, not a new problem, even if you go back to the creeds, they jump right from Jesus' like birth by the Virgin Mary to his death. He suck, he's like, he was born under the Virgin Mary and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. You're like, wait a minute, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have a little bit in between those two events. You know, there's just a little, whole, there's just a little bit there between he was born and then he died. There was this, there was some like stories in there, I think, something, and I think he did a few cool things, and I think he had like the sermon that apparently Gandhi or somebody was really into, and I think he had some really profound things to say. And often, you know, if you just think of Jesus as a savior, you don't know what to do with most of the four gospels. 
Because most of the four Gospels are Jesus not only saving you in the kind of Western beautiful sense of made right with God, um, but are reteaching us a whole new way to be human. And so it's not Jesus the teacher or Jesus the Savior. It's Jesus the Rabbi, the Messiah, and the Son of God, all and the Lord of all creation, all rolled into one. And so all that to say, we have to get back to Jesus is the teacher, not only of what God is like, but of what humanity is like. In Jesus, we see not only perfect divinity, but perfect humanity. We see a whole new way to be human. We see the best way to be human. And if we follow Jesus, then we get to start to open our lives up to the Holy Spirit. Spiritual disciplines, all they do is present our mind and body before God. And that's basically as far as they can take us. They can do some good things to like uh, grow our willpower muscle, exercise that a little bit. They can help us to overcome our flesh. And, but really, all, they reach the end of their tether when they present you before God, and then God does all of the heavy lifting. Um, but in our over-busy world with a phone in our front right pocket and traffic and noise and secularism, if you don't intentionally craft a life where you regularly present your mind and your body before God through whatever practices are most life-giving for you and based on Jesus, whether that's Sabbath or silence and solitude or prayer or scripture or just a meal around a table with your community or worship by singing or hearing the scriptures taught or read out loud or whatever it is, that, or a walk in nature or whatever it is that you connect with at a deep soul level. And obviously this is Ireland, like you have some serious history around here, the spiritual disciplines and the way of Jesus and this kind of spirituality. You have to intentionally craft a life around that. And I guess I can just end with this. Um, you know, a lot of people hear this and it just sounds like, again, one more thing on top of an already over busy life. And so that they feel like anxiety, right? And like overwhelmed, like, oh no, I like, I'm trying to read my Bible every day and I only do it every third day. And now you're saying I have to Sabbath too and like go to church every week and whatever it is. And I, it's just, I think it's so easy for us to miss the heart of God. And um, Jesus in Matthew 11, my favorite invitation of Jesus actually isn't the come and follow me one. That's great. My favorite is Matthew 11 where he says, if, anybody, if anyone is weary or heavy laden, which I think in 2018 most of us would say we're all weary and we're all heavy laden. Like exhaust, low-grade exhaustion and anxiety is the new normal across the Western world. Anxiety is like the great harbinger of what it means to be a millennial, right? Um, if anyone is weary and heavy laden, come to me and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Most of us don't actually, most of our felt, I think for most Christians, our felt experience of following Jesus does not match that verse. Most of us, if we were brutally honest, would say that following Jesus does not feel easy. It feels really hard. And um, the philosopher Dallas Willard, who is a, a writer who's passed now but has changed my life, he had this thing that he called the secret of the easy yoke. And it was a very simple observation. And he just made the point that if you just try to do life how everybody does life, and then you try to obey all the commands in the Sermon on the Mount, it will be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. In fact, it will be so hard that it will be impossible, and you will feel tired and anxious and discouraged. But if you adopt Jesus' overall pattern of life, that's what a yoke was. Yoke was a first century idiom, idiom for a, a rabbi's way of life. So to take up, to say, my, take my yoke upon you was to say, take my, my lifestyle upon you. It's just like what Paul said, follow me when I follow Christ, or imitate me as I imitate Christ. Exact same kind of idea. Just live how I live. Watch how, Eugene Peterson's translation of that, watch how I do it, 
Learn the, it's great, watch how I do it. This whole human thing, watch how I do it. You want to know how to do sexuality, money, community, rhythm, morning routine, just watch how I do it. And then the next line in Peterson's translation is learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Ah, rhythms of grace is what he meant by spiritual disciplines. These are rhythms of grace where you open up your mind and body to the grace that in the New Testament, I think that word means the empowering presence of God. You just open yourself up to this empowering presence. So Willard just said, if you adopt Jesus' overall pattern of life and you focus less on the moral commands, but more on just living the way, live in community. Live simply. Don't go out buying and selling all the time. Set aside time of both engagement, where you do kingdom stuff, but then withdrawal, where you just sleep in, take a nap in a boat, or practice Sabbath. Or like get in trouble for snacking in a grain field and just enjoy a walk with your friends. Or like just sit around the table with people you shouldn't hang out with and drink wine. Or go to a mountain and pray. Or just spend a few weeks alone out in the wilderness, just in the beauty of nature and and prayer with God. And like these are just lifestyle habits of Jesus. If you focus on the lifestyle, the other stuff will naturally flow out of your life. That's Paul's list. Like, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Notice he does, there's not a single command in there. We misread that as like, okay, I, I need to be more loving, I need to be more joyful, I need to be more peaceful, I need to be more patient. And like, I've literally heard sermon series that went through each one, like one at a time, and basically it was like, okay, so this week we're gonna work on being more patient. Paul has one command in that entire passage. You know what it is? Walk in the Spirit. One command, and he repeats it twice. Walk in the Spirit. As you walk in the Spirit, which is, again, what the spiritual disciplines are about. You just, that's why they're called the spiritual disciplines. They're disciplines of mind and body to open yourself up to the grace of the Holy Spirit. As you walk in the Spirit, this stuff just starts to come out of you. Not in a day, not in a week, not even in a decade for most of us, but over a lifetime. So I just use this very simple analogy. Um, I, I live right in this like, cool little neighborhood right on the edge of downtown Portland. And um, Nike is based in Portland, so tons of Nike people in the city. And across the street um, is this house, and it's very classic Portland. It's like eight single people live there, which is very Portland. It's like these old kind of hipster houses with lots of single people in them. And um, they all either work for Nike or they're sponsored by Nike or something, because regularly in the morning, especially like in winter, I'll be sitting there in my little office that has a window facing the front, drinking my coffee, in my like sweatshirt or whatever, and they'll walk out the front door, like all six of them, and they're all like wearing spandex and Nike, all of this, and they're like 0% body fat, (laughs) and they just look like gods and goddesses or whatever, and they're runners. I run, I run three or four times a week, but I'm not a runner. You know the difference? There's a difference between you run on a regular basis and you're a runner. If you don't know the difference, trust me, it's, there's a difference. <laughs> and, um, and so these, these people are runners. And so they'll walk out of this, they'll walk out of this you know, door early in the morning and they'll just do their warm-up moves and they're all sexy and young and cool. And, and then they'll just start to kind of run down the street. And it's not really running, it's, it's, it's less human being and more antelope. It's a little bit more like <laughs> prancing. You know, like a real runner is like crazy light on their feet. You know what I'm talking about? Do you have real runners here? Yes? Okay, maybe so. And and I'll just see them go off, and they just fly, and they glide. They look like they're not even, like, breathing, and they just fly down the street. And on a regular basis, I'll sit there and think to myself, I want that life. Like, I want to look good in spandex. I, 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 can we just be honest here? I would like that. I, um... (laughs) I, I want to run a, a six-minute mile without even like being winded and being able to chat to the person on my right. 
I, I want to have 0% body fat. But, th but then I think about the lifestyle, my lifestyle versus their lifestyle. I was up late, like, drinking red wine and watching Netflix, you know? They went to bed at, like, 9 p.m. with, you know, celery for dinner or something, <laughs> and they had water and a banana for breakfast, you know? And they got up, and I'm, like, reading Dallas Willard over a second cup of coffee, and they're running a six-minute mile through the city, like, in January, when it doesn't get dark till 9 a.m. or something like that. And I think, man, there's a whole lifestyle that makes that life possible. And I think a lot of us feel about Jesus the way that I feel about those runners. We see Jesus and we're like, oh, I want that life. That looks so cool. Like, he was so happy all the time and he just wasn't controlled by what other people thought of him and he knew when to get mad, but it tended to not be about his own ego, but about the right kind of things to get mad. And then when other people were all freaking out, he was like a non-anxious presence and like asleep in the storm. Like it was so, like we look at Jesus and we just think, oh, I want that life. But then we kind of just want to go do our own Western thing and just shop and buy and sell and be over busy and be on our phone and go read our Bible when we have time, that kind of stuff. And, and so we end up frustrated. And so I think that's why Jesus would regularly just say, come and follow me, with no sales pitch. Jesus is like anti-PR. Like, he literally would try to talk people out of following him. Like, oh, we really want to follow you. Are you sure? I'm homeless. I don't have a place to stay. I know a lot of rich people, but it's not every night. You know what I mean? Foxes have holes, birds of the air, whatever. I have nowhere. Are you sure? You know, like, he would almost try to talk people out. It's so counterintuitive, because I think Jesus realized that to apprentice under him is to experience what life, what he called life to the full. But there's a cost to it. And so I called it the cost of discipleship. And so we just regularly say, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And again, this isn't about earning God's love. You have God's love. You work from God's love, not for God's love. This is about tapping into the life that God has for you, moving beyond you know, sin management and frustration and just you know, cultural Christianity to life in the kingdom, to righteousness, peace, and joy. And um, I think it was Bonhoeffer who rightly, he coined that phrase, the cost of discipleship, but then rightly said, we also have to talk about the cost of non-discipleship. So yes, it costs you to follow Jesus, but it costs you even more to not follow Jesus. It costs you righteousness and peace and joy, what you were made for. So that's why I think Jesus was just brutally honest. Come, take up your cross. You'll have to die. But on the other side of that is this incredible life that's worth every ounce of it. Well, thanks for listening. We'd love to invite you to join us in Belfast on the 10th to the 11th of May, 2019, when we'll be joined by Tim Chaddock. He's a church planter and lead pastor of Reality London. You can find out more and book your place at fabricconference.com.